In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. I don't know if you know this about me. I tend to get a little obsessive about things sometimes. And that is certainly true about my hobbies. Uh, And Amy, my wife, will tell you, perhaps through pursed lips, that I've had seasons of obsession with running, with chess, and some other things uh, as well. But before I went to seminary, the obsession was golf. I played a lot of golf. I read magazine articles. I read books. I watched golf. I practiced golf. I talked about golf to anybody who would listen. The thing is, I was terrible at golf. (laughs) Terrible. My little brother went out and shot an 85 the first time he ever played. He was a quarterback and and a pitcher. I was an offensive lineman. I, uh, I broke 100 twice, and I had, and I should say I have, an incredible slice. Uh, occasionally, I would overcorrect and hook it. And you know how golf is. If you've played at all, there's always that one fluke shot that's perfect, has that nice rise, and lands right in the short grass in the middle of the fairway. And it just makes you think, if, if I could just do that every time, I'd, I'd be pretty good, you know. And In fact, I actually hit a hole-in-one once on a very poorly struck mulligan. <laughs> and you talk about a fluke. So I just, I, but I knew if I just, I could do it, right? And I just tried, and I tried, and I worked, and I worked, and I spent money, and I spent money. And I got a little bit better. But I also tended to get really mad because the better I got, the madder I got when I would hit a a bad shot. I could see what I was supposed to do, and sometimes I could do it, but when it counted the most, I would duff it or top it or slice it. And then I would cuss loudly. And so when I got to seminary, I gave up golf for the most part. I figured I didn't make enough money to pay that much to get that mad at something I was supposed to enjoy. Because I could see what I was supposed to do, but I had a really hard time doing it. And I just often left discouraged from this hobby that should have been bringing me joy. Now. I share this story of my own neurosis because I wonder if sometimes you ever feel like that with your Christian faith, particularly when we come across passages like the Reverend Deacon Beth just read from our gospel uh, reading in Luke, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. For anyone who takes, uh, from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. Don't try to recover the things that people steal from you and do to others 
as you would have them do to you. I love the passages in Scripture that talk about how much Jesus loves me. But I get to a list like this and I can see what I'm supposed to do, but I have a really hard time doing it. And I probably just leave discouraged, even though it's supposed to bring me joy. In golf, I know I'm supposed to keep the club face closed, but no matter how I try, I nearly always keep it open and slice the ball. In my walk with Christ, I know I'm supposed to love my enemies and do good to those who hate me and not lay on the horn at the person who cuts me off in traffic and be kind to the person I know is going to be ugly to me. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I have a hard time doing it. And you know, there was that one fluke shot where I did actually love the person who was going to be ugly to me, and now when I'm I'm supposed to, I don't want to, and I get mad that I have to, and I'm ashamed that I don't, and so my faith that's supposed to bring me joy leaves me discouraged on lots of levels. Does anybody else know that dance? In Scripture, there are essentially two words. Two words. There is law, and there is gospel. Law and gospel. We might also call them judgment and love. Or religion and relationship. Or good advice and good news. Or what we are supposed to do and what has been done for us. Law and gospel. And they're both good. They just have very different functions from one another in our life of faith. Law and gospel. The law describes what we are to do. And it describes what we are to do as a reflection of the character of God. And it describes a better life, a holy life. Think about uh, the Ten Commandments. Now, wouldn't life be better if no one murdered and no one committed adultery? And no one lied. And everyone honored their parents. And we all got good rest at least once a week on the Sabbath. I mean, wouldn't life be better? Yes. Life would be better. Or you could think of the law just as an illustration in terms of something benign like a speed limit. If everyone kept the speed limit, there would be fewer wrecks. And therefore, there would be fewer fatalities. And insurance prices would be lower and gas prices would be lower. Wouldn't that be better? Yeah. Is that going to keep you from speeding on the way home from church this morning? No. (laughs) The law in any form, whether it is divine or civil or anything else, and there's lots of other ways that we can have law, and I can't get into those this morning, but the law is good in its description of a better life. But it also shows us where we fall short. It's kind of like a mirror where you look into it and see what's out of place. But the law cannot get us to do what it describes. Right? 
My golf, I know what I'm supposed to do. My golf game would be so much better if I could get my wrist from here to here. There's like 20 shots difference between this and this. I know it. And I want to do it, but knowing it and wanting to do it don't get me to do it very often. And so at first pass, this list in our gospel passage of really good advice that Jesus gives to us is law. Would our world be better if we all had the capacity to love our enemies? If we would turn the other cheek? If we were generous to everyone who asked? If we were always merciful and forgiving? Would our life be better? Yeah, it would. Should we? Yes. Will we? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Why? Why? This is the hard part. If we take time to get past the sort of little giggle of probably not, to ask, why will we probably not? Then we're going to be forced to deal with the fact that it's because we're selfish. We're selfish. Our natural posture, our natural inclination is to be centered on ourselves and not on others. We're in a hurry for ourselves and we can't slow down for others. We see life from our own perspective. We can't see it from the perspective of others. As we look in the mirror of the law and what we see is that we are self-centered. And so you see what the law does. But besides describing this good life and God's, describing God's will for us, the law condemns us. It coldly and unflinchingly highlights our sin, which is to say our selfishness, our natural godlessness. And so at first pass, that's what the law does. And it's, it's good. We need, we need that. But we can do a couple of things when we feel condemned. We don't like feeling condemned. I don't. And, and so we can do a couple of things. We can ignore the problem. Just pretend like, ah, nobody's perfect. It's not really that big of a deal. I hope you don't do that. We can walk away from it. It's too hard. Hope you won't do that. Or we can see the insurmountable law and we can cry out for God to save us. The very one that our sin offends is the only one who can do anything about it. And he has. The law is good because it describes the will of God, because it describes a better life, but it also is good because it prepares us for the gospel. And it drives us to our Savior. It drives us to Jesus, who loved us when our lives were opposed to him. Who did good for us on the cross, though we were against him. Who blessed us, though our lives have cursed him. 
who, uh, for those who struck him, he asks, Father, forgive them. Who generously gives mercy to all who beg for mercy. Who does not judge because he took the judgment upon himself. Who does not condemn because he took the condemnation. Who forgives. The law drives us to Jesus. The law drives us to the gospel. The good news. The law is what we are to do. The gospel is what has been done for us. The law is demand. The gospel is grace. The law shows us where we fall short. The gospel proclaims how Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf. They're both good. They're both necessary. They just have very different functions. Now here's the thing. Jesus, not going to do much for my golf game, right? It's still pretty much up to me to get my wrist from here to here. But when it comes to loving our enemies, when it comes to turning the other cheek and blessing those who curse us, when it comes to those things, the more that we lean into what Jesus has done for us, the more we are freed up to love our enemies. Where the law cannot get us to do the thing that it describes, the gospel is the enabling word. Gospel is the enabling word. The grace of God creates in us what the law demands. Now, if you don't think you're really that bad, you don't think you really had that much for Jesus to forgive you for, and it's really, this is not going to make much of a difference for you. But if you can see the depth of your own selfishness and pride, and if you can see the lengths that Christ has gone to forgive you and declare you holy and proclaim you his child, that it cost, that your life cost him his life, which he willingly gave for you in love, that his resurrection means your resurrection. If you can see that and be awed by it for what it really is, then the gospel begins to change us. And slowly, the law ceases to be a condemning duty becomes instead the Christian's delight. And so this is what we might call the second pass of the law. When we filter what we are to do through the lens of what Jesus has already done for us, we want to be like him because we love him. We want to be like him because it pleases him. When we know how much we need grace, it becomes a lot easier to give grace. We see how much we've been forgiven, it becomes our desire to forgive. Even if we don't always do it perfectly, we want to. When our identity is caught up in how we are loved by God, then even love for enemies becomes our desire. Doesn't mean it's easy. But it is good. It's good and in fact it's sanctifying. To bear witness to the gospel that we have received by living it out for the world to see. And there are lots of examples I think. Of how we can see Christians uh, who have 
loved their enemies, often at great cost to themselves. Our denomination was founded by Archbishop Thomas Cramer, who just was, um, which was so, his, his um, allies were so infuriated by the fact that he kept loving his enemies and appealing to those who were against him. Ended up costing him his life. We think about Dr. Martin Luther King and how uh, he just relentlessly sought to protest with nonviolence and love. It was costly. It cost him his life. I feel like I've been on both ends of loving your enemies. I, and I, it's not cost me my life, thanks be to God, but I, I have, uh, I've shown my worst self sometimes and, and been loved anyway. I'm certainly thinking of my wife, Amy. I think of her mom, who's seen me at my worst and loved me so well. And there's certainly been times where I have had to love those who were opposed to me. Sometimes that's been a discipline and not something that comes naturally, not, a, not, not out of joy. But I tell you that the more that I receive the grace of God and grace from other people, the more I can begin to have uh, compassion and love for those with whom I am at odds. And so love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you And if anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and do to others as you would have them do to you. In fact, do to others as Jesus has done to you. And it won't help your golf game, but it will sanctify you. And it will honor and glorify your Savior. Amen.